Good morning, dear saints. What a tremendous privilege it is to be among the saints of God here at Mount Zion Bible Church. Uh, my sincere and genuine appreciation to not only you, but Pastor Jeff Pollard uh, for the opportunity to stand in a pulpit from which many, if not the main mentors of my life, have stood and preach. Um, be praying for Pastor Joe Jackowitz, by the way. He is currently in the ER, and he's in a difficult way. Uh, if you could remember him in your prayers, please. Um, but I would like to invite you, if you will, to open in your copy of God's Word and join me in Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I will open with a uh, few introductory comments. We'll be looking at the pure in heart this morning. Now, this precious beatitude belongs most properly in a series where we would have naturally flowed from the first three uh, Beatitudes in a trilogy of speaking to that which empties out a man, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness and being subdued underneath the, the power and the authority of Almighty God. We would have transitioned through a, an important verse, verse 6 of Matthew 5, where we do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And there is therein a filling and empowering of the grace of God. And then to answer the, the emptying of the first three would come the second trilogy, the next three. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart to which we look at today, and then blessed are the peacemakers. And having arrived at this eighth verse, it would have been very much an answer, a parallel, a mirror to the first three, where the second beatitude of that first three would have been, blessed are those who mourn over sin. And out from the spirit which has gone forth to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and the judgment to come, holy tears being produced in the soul of a man, there would have by the filling of God's grace within him, by grace, there would have been a purity of heart. There would have been a desire to see God as he is. And from that heart, a purifying of motives, of intents. And it is with that backdrop that I direct your attention to this precious verse. I will read verse 1 through 12 for full context. We will focus our attention primarily this morning on just verse 8. Please follow along as I read aloud and hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. May the Lord be pleased to bless the reading of his word. And let us seek his face once more. Our Father in heaven, precious and mighty Lord God, the God and Father of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, whom you have made to be unto us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. The one by whose shed blood on Calvary's cross our sins are not only forgiven, but we may now stand before your presence, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in your sight. O Father, I ask that you would grant this needy preacher a measure of the gift of the grace of the Spirit of God, that I may speak as I ought to speak as a man who will be held accountable. And grant unto these, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. May the word go forth in triumph over unbelief. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. You would have remembered, either in your own studies or in your trek through the Beatitudes, specifically uh, when dealing with blessed are the merciful. You may have been introduced to the concept, and I know many of you are quite familiar with it, uh, figures of speech, uh, like putting on bowels of mercies, where you would have heard of the biblical and these ancient figures of speech related to the bowels and how they ultimately refer Uh, to the seat of our emotions, this potent poetic symbol, as it were, of your emotions, your compassions, and even something that still lingers on today and what we would understand if there was a situation that was rather traumatic or sad, uh, there would be those who would say it were a gut-wrenching situation. And you know, no one's confused when we use that kind of language. When we say it's gut-wrenching, we're saying it's a deep, serious, emotional kind of severity. And we we use that language because it it grabs hold of a a deeper meaning uh, than what we are able to paint otherwise. But perhaps more well-known today would be the symbol of how we speak about the heart. Even today still, we use that as a poetic symbol that goes beyond just thinking about the blood-pumping muscle. When we say, I love you with all my heart, or I am heartbroken, we're using the same kind of figure of speech, but it's important to note and to annotate. In the ancient world, however, and as the Spirit is breathing forth this issue regarding the heart, we must know that the heart was not simply just the seat of our emotions and our feelings like the bowels indicated, but instead the heart speaks of something so incredibly much more. Blessed 
or the pure in heart. Today we won't be speaking simply about the concept of purity itself, but rather that purity as it is modified and informed as belonging to this wondrous context to the heart. So as we talk about purity, we speak of it especially as it relates to this, this deeper concept of a man. When we look at the scriptures, when we review even the Old Testament, the New Testament, when we look at the teachings of the men God raised up and, and we behold the inscripturated word of God, it's, it's important, important that we understand what they mean when they are speaking concerning the heart. It's important that we understand because for oftentimes when we think about and how and where we think in general, the, the place in our life of where it is that we actually make decisions. Uh, today we're often talking about our mind. But if you're going to understand what our Lord is saying in this text about what he says is purity of heart, if we're going to understand what all of the New Testament, for that matter, is speaking of as it relates uh, to this, and when they're dealing with the new man, and when they're dealing with a new heart, then we need to understand that in this context, the way the word is being used, the heart ultimately represents everything about the truest, deepest, transcendent sense of who you really are. How you think, how you act, how you speak. One way to think of this would be if the mind is simply where you store facts, truths, then the heart would be where we process those facts and we arrive at conviction. The meditations and musings of our hearts ultimately define what kind of heart we have. If you remember, consider King David in Psalm 19.14 where he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And here from this context, we see that the heart, as it is communicated to us in the word of God, is something that can meditate. The heart is, a, is something that can think. The heart makes deep impressions and even convictions within the, the, the center of, of our thinking. Proverbs 4, 23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So much of our character, so much of our habits, so much of what informs day to day how we will react even before the external situation meets us have already preemptively been informed by the heart from which flow all the issues of life. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 20, excuse me, Luke chapter 6 verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is evil. For out, excuse me, for of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words that you choose to use actually flow out of the kind of heart that you have and have less to do with the difficulty of the people or the situation you may be dealing with at the moment. As, as one man said, you know, whatever it is that, that you're carrying around in your bosom, when you are jostled, it's only that that's going to spill out. 
If I carry salt water, no matter how hard you shake me, fresh water will never come out. It'll merely be salt water. And in that sense, our circumstances have a way of making visible through the mouth what may be true yet still unseen, even by ourselves. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Meaning if you have dirty water down in the well, when you drop that bucket, it will be dirty water in the bucket. And when others follow you and follow me around long enough and listen to how we speak, listen to how we speak to others, very oftentimes they will get a look at what's down in that well. Scripture says that the soul of a man is a deep well. And it is, and there's so many things we, we cannot truly know about others and, and oftentimes even ourselves. But words have a way of clarifying what is unknown. Just consider the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as an aside, our Lord made much of this again and again throughout his ministry, his earthly ministry, making it known that by our words we shall either be justified or by our words we shall be condemned. And at the end of the day, if we aim to change the temper of our speech, we need to know the fount from which that water flows. But we move on. The heart not only forms words, but the heart, again, Take it in as a whole, is the center of our character, our personality, our dispositions, our attitudes. Our heart can choose to walk in the light. The heart can choose to hide in the dark. The heart can either convict us of our sins or our heart can deceive us into sin. Remember the scriptures, the, the heart of man before he is saved, according to scripture, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. We must be aware that the heart can literally lie to us. And we can believe the lies of our own heart. And that's why we can often end up sometimes in circumstances and situations where even where the facts are clearly against us, but we don't believe they are. There's something deeper internal going on that's interpreting the external according to what suits it best. The heart is a powerful force because it's dealing with the truest part of who we are deep down inside, regardless of facts, regardless of externals, regardless of what is going on. The heart can ponder. The heart can wrestle. The heart can reason. It can be offended. The heart can love. It can hate. It can be humble. A heart can be lifted up in pride. It can be hard like a stone. By grace, it can be softened and it can be made to bleed. It can be defiled and full of pollution. Be full of mixed motives and mixed reasons for why you do what you do. The heart can have ulterior motives. As we will look today in Christ, it can be made pure and single in its devotion and single in its motives. 
Consider this, that in the target of the new birth, God's grace and the effects of salvation arrive primarily at the heart of the man. According to Scripture, this is where God speaks and says He he takes away the heart of stone and, and He gives a heart of flesh. This is where He circumcises and cuts the flesh of the heart and cuts away the old. And by miraculous generation fills it with new. In Ezekiel 36 verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. It is in this deep, inward, hidden reality of who we really are and think, and what we really believe, and the why, why that is undergirding what we ultimately choose to do. It's there within the the secret, dark depths of our hidden motives and our hidden agendas that the grace of God and regeneration comes for in salvation. This is where he makes the cut of circumcision. This is where he makes the, the evident changes that give evidence to us being a new creature. A new creature in the practice of our actual life day to day. Uh, the part of our lives that, if you'll hear me, lives on even after the body itself dies. This is the unseen, immaterial part of our personality. Again, as you're seeing, as has been said, we're not speaking of the blood-pumping muscle. We're, we're talking about this inward, invisible aspect that no one really gets to see and know but you and, truest of all, God himself. Before the salvation of God came for his people, that heart, according to Scripture, was indeed as hard as a rock. It was deceitful, and it lied to itself. It was desperately wicked, uh, beyond even the ability of he who possessed that heart to know it in, in full. All of the sins that we ever sinned flowed out of that heart, every blasphemy. As it says in Matthew 15, but those things which proceed out of the heart come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. If we have issues with hatred, if we have issues with lust, if we have issues with covetousness, if we have issues with idolatry, all of these things are not a byproduct of just bad habits and and other external factors that is chiefly this issue. Every lie, every mischief, every corrupt word and action or deceit flowed from that heart. But in sweet new birth, where the Spirit of God blew upon the dry, dry bones of Ezekiel's valley and caused a people to stand up in the power and strength of His grace. When His grace was applied to us in time, wonder of wonders, everything changes. The hard heart broken. And according to scripture, that heart of stone which has now been broken is taken away. And that heart of flesh, something alive, something beating, something bleeding, something feeling, something that is sensitive 
and can suffer. God writes his law then upon that sensitive heart. Why? So that he may change you and cause you to meditate and think. And the one thing that you are most sensitive to is the righteousness of Almighty God and his command and his law. So that when Christ says, if you love me, obey my commandments. The response to that is heart deep and more than mere religious duty. It is an inward affection, an inward reality that is a product of God's promise that those who hungered and thirst after righteousness, he would indeed fill them. And ultimately, with a new heart, is new love. New love for him, specifically. Not merely love for truthfulness. We do love truthfulness. Uh, Not love merely for righteousness. We do love righteousness. But all these loves are true because they ultimately flow out from a love of him who is truth himself and who is the righteousness of God himself. It is a love for Jesus Christ, a heart that has been made to cry out and look heavenward, Lord, whom have I in heaven beside thee? And here we love him as it says in 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. There was no loveliness in us when he found us in in our depravity. There, There was nothing instigating him to show us mercy and to show us kindness. In the infinite, inestimable, incalculable, boundless shores and deeps, the unsoundable, bottomless fathoms of his love, There was only within himself a reason to love the unlovable. And in regeneration, he has communicated some aspect of that wondrous reality and enabled us now to look heavenward with eyes opened and to love him, to genuinely love him, not merely to fulfill our time with simple rote duties, not merely to enter into things as, as though we in and of ourselves are going to be the, the, the standard that other people look to in and of itself. Not so that we can have something whereby to show others or something to prove, but rather every exercise of grace, every exercise of obedience, every exercise of even, yes, duty, flows out from one great whole reality. That God, in the face of Jesus Christ, is the greatest affection, desire, rule, love, life, and motivation for everything that we do and the why we do what we do. Every godly desire, every holy ambition, every genuine good work flows out of a new regenerate heart in which Scripture says that God himself then at this point is working in you. Philippians 2.13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good will and pleasure. And here this new heart then becomes a gift. And like any other gift coming from God, it is to be stewarded to the glory of God. With it comes a change in our meditations, how we think about this world, how we think about sin, how we think about life, how we think about God. It represents a change in relationship with God and with sin. 
the God whose righteousness that we once hated, by grace we now love, and the sin we once relished and had a fondness for and loved, we now hate. In the surest and clearest mark that we are truly born again of the Spirit and that we've been regenerated by His grace is that our heart has been circumcised. The most evident evidence that we have a new relationship with God is that we have a new relationship with sin. In the Old Testament, every male of the children of Israel was to be circumcised in their flesh, showing the mark of the covenant to which they belonged. And in the new covenant, the heart that has had the corrupted nature of the flesh cut and circumcised away, there bears the mark, the inward sign of the new covenant. Here therein is this wondrous spiritual baptism, an immersion in and of the Holy Spirit, an indwelling that saturates the believers, sealing them, and then living a life where the Scriptures are being illuminated to our hearts and minds so that we may understand, enabling us to pray, as, for we do not know often how to pray as we ought. But He supplements, He aids, He comes, and He helps. The parakletos who comes along beside enables us, who continues to convict us and draws us repeatedly back to repentance again and again and again. For as the word says, even a righteous man stumbles seven times a day. The greatest evidence of new life is not that we've repented once somewhere in the past, but we live an ongoing life of sensitivity to God and are continually being brought back to repentance by the evident power of his mercy and grace. He produces this which we are to enter into, spiritual fruit in our lives, because unless we abide in the vine, unless we abide in Christ, we are like withered branches fit only for the fire. This agency of the Spirit in regeneration purifies our hidden motives and purifies our desires. It's in the sense that the 16th century Puritan commentator Matthew Henry says, here, speaking of this beatitude, this is the most comprehensive of all the beatitudes. Here, holiness and happiness are fully described and put together. Here, holiness and happiness are not as often is the case in a culture that does not know God and does not savor and relish the, 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 the goodness of God in his word, and, and they think of holiness as something that is mere uh, external formalism and rigidity and hardness and, and something that is birthed out of, of saying no to doing all the things you really, really genuinely want to do. No, that is not the case. Here in Scripture, we find that truly the, the happiest saint is the saint walking in holiness with his God. Because otherwise, the tragedy would inevitably be that he would have a hunger and a desire for righteousness, a love for God and for his truth to see him as he is, only to partake of so much of the compromise of this world that he can enjoy none of it. And yet his heart is too still, yet raptured up to the right hand of the throne room of God to be going on enjoying this world when God is consistently turning its temporary pleasures into ash in his mouth. There's no more miserable creature than a saint 
who has too much of heaven to enjoy this world and too much of this world in practice to enjoy heaven. Holiness and happiness, they belong together. And truly, as dear Matthew Henry points out, this envelops so much of the Christian life with this heart in view. This is the heart that Scripture talks about and what Christ is here speaking about that must in practice be pure. When we define purity, again, it is not merely some ritual way, some kind of formalism or hand-washing, some kind of cleanness on the outside of the cup alone. When we speak particularly of that purity which belongs to this heart, he speaks of a cleanness that goes as deep as your life and your identity itself. And let us know, as has been said, we are not talking about moral perfectionism, human perfectionism, with no failures and stumblings and sins and remaining defilement of the flesh. But what we are speaking of is a new creation, as was said, when we do stumble, when we do stumble, the renewed and the pure heart feels it and mourns over sin and is able to seek repentance carefully with tears and unlike Esau, find it. They feel it, they sense it, they can't just ignore it and go on as those all were right in the world. They hate their own sin, they do mourn over it, and it works on them until they work it out in repentance and faith and returning back to the blood that was shed upon Calvary's cross, sprinkling their heart from a guilty conscience, making confession, a godly sorrow that leadeth unto repentance, not to be repented of. And there is at that moment the the freedom that comes, not by any work that they have done, but a belief upon the finished work of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. And those who feel that effect in their heart, They strive to ensure that their motives and their intentions are clean before God. They do strive to keep short accounts with God. They cry with King David, Lord, may the meditations of my heart be well-pleasing in your sight, O God. And so it is in this way that with all the different aspects that purity deals with, there would need to be I'm sure Pastor Pollard would appreciate this. Multiple sermons on unraveling all the different threads of which this purity is to be understood, undefiled by the pollution of the flesh and its lust in the inward man. So many aspects to it, like gold that has been purified, like air that has been made pure, like water that has been made pure enough to drink from. But of of all these aspects, I want to deal with one in particular with my time. And that is singleness of heart. Singleness. Later in this very Sermon on the Mount in which we find this verse, Christ our Lord is found talking about the importance of having a single eye. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the light of the body is the eye, and if therefore thine eye Be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. 
The Lord is concerned that His saints, living and being, the saints that they are, the light and salt of the world by His grace at work in them, He is concerned that they maintain a singleness of eye. And what I believe our Lord is speaking to here is, is an eye that's not looking one direction at one goal while simultaneously looking at another direction at another goal. Not two eyes with two different targets running out two different strands of agendas and goals. Not one eye aiming to serve God with a holy ambition, with the other eye aiming to serve mammon and the lust of the flesh. But our two eyes are, in a sense, to be, as it were, braided together, acting as a single strand of motive and thought and aim. I give you a, of God's natural revelation in the world around you, a consideration. Consider the chameleon, a living parable of an animal known for its two independent, unbraided eyes that is often looking two different directions at once, also known for its color-changing ability to change its external appearance and suit itself to mimic whatever environment it's in. I know, what an animal. It's wicked tongue because it can lash out at a moment with little warning when you didn't know it was there. You must know that religion, and I say this with no joy in my heart, is filled today with many chameleon, color-changing, shape-shifting, tongue-lashing, double-eyed, hidden motive, self-serving, Hypocrites. Who will with one eye look to do an outwardly good deed in the name of God for everyone to see while the other eye looks to accomplish goals that are actually quite selfish and they're aiming to make themselves look good and perhaps sometimes even to shame others who do not, in, at least in their estimate, in their double vision, they don't look as good as themselves. And Christ, my dear friends, recognizes a cross-eyed chameleon when he sees one. He walked in the midst of them, and he identified them. Pharisees, he rebuked them. He said unto them, you hypocrites, you have, you have washed the outside of the cup. There's your one eye. There's where you're looking. But you've also got a different lens and a different direction you're looking at when it comes to the inside of the cup. You have the outside and you have the inside. You leave one part as polluted as polluted can be. Christ said unto the Pharisees that you are like whitewashed tombs. Over here on the outside, it is pretentiously beautiful. But there on the inside, it's full of dead men's bones. He says, you hypocrite, you make with pretense long prayers and you devour widows' houses. It's as though he says, you eat and you chew people alive. You spit out their bones all while looking good and religious to anyone who will pat you on the back and say, good job. It's as though he's saying, you're unsingle. 
Your mixed motives, your eye is not pure and it is not single. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for you are like unto white sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Christ reserves some of his harshest rebukes in his ministry contained in Matthew 23 for this kind of hypocrite. And he says here in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, by, by contradistinction, blessed are the pure in heart. And the master lays upon those of us who will hear what the Spirit is saying, a call to purity and motive, singleness and intentions, singleness and what we are actually aiming to do in any given circumstance whether it is care for others or work in the ministry, to give us a people not with double standards, but with one standard, regardless, even if no one finds out the good deeds we may be doing in secret. If nobody sees any of these things, the goal of the pure in heart is simply to worship God. And in that sense, Christ, again, will go on to say in this self-same Sermon on the Mount, which beginning to end all together like a beautiful song, no individual note can merely be ripped from it and made into a wooden law unto itself, but it sings uh, a, a song that is only heard when all the notes belong together in their proper order, in their sequence, and speak to something more than the sum of its parts. What a true Christian is from the heart. And within this song he sings in Matthew 6, verses 3 through 4, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Let thine alms, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father, which sees in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. It's here when no one sees, when no one is watching, and there's no one to commend our good deeds. Here is where the heart of the born-again saint can thrive. Serving his or her master simply for the sake that they love him. And they want him to receive all the glory and all the honor and praise from the life they live as imperfect as they are. With a thousand failures, yet their motives are real. Their pursuit by an activity of God's grace within them, is as genuine as they know how to be. Though faulty and frail, with hearts prone to wander as they are, the grace of God's Spirit fetters them and binds them back to their first love again and again, and they find the promise of Christ ministering to their souls, that he who began a good work in them shall see it to the day of Jesus Christ. And the one thing they hate more than anything else in this world is their own traitor within. All that remains of the defilement of the flesh, their own flesh, that which would try to deceive them into thinking that they can do any good or right thing while contradicting the good, single, pure nature of the God who sees all things as they really are. And may God spare us from such impure thinking, impure motives, impure actions. For as Scripture says in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, 
unto the pure. All things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. What do you do when you take a rusty, dirty spoon that you fished up out of the backyard and you put good, clean water one spoonful at a time upon it and you drink? Is what you're drinking pure? No. So much of the, the secret and the hidden motive of a man will either commend or it will pollute the good work he goes to do. For instance, Scripture says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Meaning, even the production of the fruit of righteousness, its, its manifestation, its evidences within the body of Christ, within our homes, within our families, within our parenting, within our ministry, within our missions work and outreaches. There are principles of, at heart, being a peacemaker that are mandatory. And even if you take good seed and you put it in good soil violently, you may ruin the yield. Christianity is not a means to an end. Christianity in the face of Jesus Christ is itself the end, that we may behold God, that we may know God, that we may worship God and enjoy Him forever. And there's never a time where our, our means can ever contradict aims and the ends to which we desire to attain by God's grace. To the pure, all things are pure. To the impure, the defiled, the unbelieving, everything we touch, however good it may be, we will only multiply the cancer we carry. And the saint of God feels this and is sensitive to this and considers this. And it drags him back into his prayer closet a thousand times until he has some measure of comfort that the Spirit of the Lord is with him, not only in forgiveness, but in purification and in divine enablement, that he may serve his master with a clear conscience. This affects everything. It affects everything. Nothing is not touched by this reality. Everything flows out from this reality. There are those who are living, walking in the light. Living, quorum Deo, before the face of God. But there are still many that are walking, even with a religious lean to their walk, who still hide in the dark. And it's evident when they speak or their inability to love and to forgive their brothers because they themselves still do not see how much defilement within them they ought to have been mourning over. I want to look at the rest of this beatitude for a moment. I want to encourage your hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart. Beloved, why? 
blessed, blessed. A, a super abundant beyond what the common vernacular of happy means. But yes, happy. Happy are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Do you live? Do you know what it means to hunger to see the glory of God? Do you know what it means to have a, a sensitive conscience before God? Do you know what it means to, to long to live in purity before Him? That your motives be purified? That your reasonings and your motivations be purified? Beloved, there is a promise. There is a promise here contained that you ought to feed yourself with and nourish yourself with. Of all these blessings that you see promised here in the Beatitudes, I think this is one of the most stunning, the most jaw-dropping, and the most remarkable one of them all. And I say this, I mean, I've read multiple times some of at least the best commentators that I could get my hands on. And they are all agreed, at least in this one thing, it's too wonderful for them. And the Bible doesn't give them enough to fully open this up and get the, the, the fullness of their arms around it, to plumb its full meaning this side of eternity and concisely report on all the glory and all the majesty that actually attends this promise. They struggle when it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Because, beloved, where, where is your heart at when you hear that? What do you love? The pure in heart, they shall see God. Think, do you realize Moses, the prophet Moses, who saw things of which we only can read about now. He longed to see the glory of God. And he had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. He could not simply gaze directly upon God. God himself communicated. Moses, the poor creature, wouldn't have survived it. He could only see the something of the after effects of the, the uttermost back parts of God having passed by before him. He could not look directly upon him. Think, for the scripture says, no man has seen God. 1 John 4.12, no man hath seen God at any time. If we want to love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. John uh, chapter 1, verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John 5, 37, and, and the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Which to us says, some utterly remarkable things. This great God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Where would you put him if, he were, if you were to bring him in to get a look at him? The highest heavens can't contain him. Where will you put him? He's eternal in his being. No beginning, no end. If you brought him in, Where? When, when would you put him? I don't think we understand, as, as the theologians struggle, how can we see him who dwells, Scripture says, higher than the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. Do we realize that even now, if we died 
And we went, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we went into his presence. You are going somewhere that cannot contain him. Do we realize that the one of whom we speak is more infinitely majestic and grand than all of heaven and all of its contents, all of its angels, all its supernatural realities, all the spirits of just men made perfect, all the streets of gold, gates of pearl, crystal sea, even the throne room, the throne of God himself. It is all minuscule, limited, finite, and little compared to the God of whom scripture says none of that can contain him. And the one who stretches the cosmos out by the span of his hand, of whom the scripture writes and calls the invisible God. Beloved, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How? I'm glad you asked. I love it, beloved. I'm no wiser than any of these commentators. My finite creaturely mind is left to agree with the Apostle Paul who when he peered into the third heavens and said he saw things too wonderful that it was not lawful for him to speak, well then neither is it for me who has seen much less than him. What I can say, I only give you this to wonder about and to know that this promise is both near and far. It is both near and it is far. There will come a day in this, the theologians talk about the beatific visions where the saints in some way shall see, or maybe better yet pronounced, perceive him. We will not have to rely on the the limitations uh, that we are limited to now where we have to wait for light to hit its target, reflect back, hit our eyes just right with a certain amount of luminosity and perceive it merely based on what's reflected off of it. We will perceive. Scripture says we will know even as we are known. There will be a perception on that day where it says in Revelation 22 verse 4, they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There will be understanding, intimacy, and knowledge. Then, that until then, we can't grasp. But this is both near and far. I've spoken about how it's far. One day, somehow, we will see him. And firstly, in the face of his son, we will see him and we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Speaking of Christ, and, and then in, in some way, Christ goes on to say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So there's some great mystery that flesh and blood cannot necessarily inherit, where we behold the glory of this God who shoots out lightnings and scatters them. And disconfits them. The glory of the God who spans out the supermassive nebula and cosmos and vast spiral galaxies as though they were child's toys. And does whatsoever he pleases. The highest ranking angels cannot say unto him, what have you done? And yet scripture says, we will behold his glory. But there is a reality, beloved, where even now, in the near, we shall see him. In the now, today. Before you leave this chapel, 
this assembling together of the saints of God, you will see him. Now let's see. You answer my question. You preach this sermon to your own heart on what I'm about to ask you. Do you remember when you first came into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And as you began to have your mind renewed in the word of God, in the scriptures, you began to learn God in ways you never thought you could know. And all of a sudden, the more you saw him alive and illuminated in this book, you began to think and to look over your past life and everything that led up to the moment at which you found yourself in that moment. And you realized there and then his fingerprints were everywhere. And he was always there. Leading, shaping, guiding, cutting you off at the past when necessary, bringing you to an expected end so that you could be the child of God that even now the, the more and more you are exemplifying and becoming. Don't you see him? Don't you see him at work in your life to bring you to the knowledge of Christ, even through the tragedy, even through the hard nights, even through the tears, even for some of us, even as young children, you could see his providences in putting you in the homes with godly fathers and godly mothers who took the time to catechize you with tears in their eyes because they loved him. Don't you see him there? When the Christian walks into the medical community and lives and works in that community for a while, why is it that the Christian can so evidently see the miracles, see the hand of God, see the prevailing providences, and yet the unregenerate can't seem to see it? Why is it that the believer steps into the sciences and looks at creation and the handiwork of God declaring the majesty of God everywhere he looks? And they're overwhelmed as they see the stars and the creation and the arrangement, and yet here these unregenerate men suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and they just can't seem to see him. Brothers and sisters, beloved, know this. According to the purity of your heart, those whose motives are pure, aiming for purity, whose heart and the eyes of your heart are single because you want to see him. That's your mark. That's your aim. You aim. You look to see him worshipped. You aim. You look to see him praised. You aim and you look so that all your actions aim to redound to his glory. You will meet with him in secret and you will walk with him in the open and you shall see your God. And you shall, like scripture says of Moses, endure as though seeing him who is invisible. And you will be sustained and upheld where others finally fall and fail. Friend, what is the greatest hope of your life? Really. I mean, really, where do you look? 
when the storms are rough, where do you look? When your barns are full with goods, where do you look? Be single-eyed. But the truest, deepest, realest part of you. Fix your gaze steadfastly on the majesty. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. For an hour will come where that majesty will explode upon this world with such demonstrable glory. You'll never sin again. The greatest joy unexpressible that you could possibly imagine if you were left to stretch your mind is to see him. If you're a child of God, your greatest joy and hope is the possibility that you may see him as he is. And to you, I I give you a token of your father's affection. A promise contained in scripture. If If you will give me grace, it is something of a love note from the Almighty. Draw nigh unto me, and I will draw nigh unto you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I know today it seems we see him through a glass darkly. But one day we will know even as we are known, we'll be changed. We'll be able to perceive what we cannot perceive now. And knowing that is true, knowing that that is true, every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Let's pray. Our precious Father in heaven, Mighty Lord God, we do praise you and thank you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, wonder of wonders. Lord, we are less than a broken Mephibosheth, stumbling up to the table of a greater David. And we have been brought nigh to look upon you, to seek your face, and to consider our ways in light of your goodness and glory and grace. Heal our backsliding. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Enable us to set our affections on things above. And Lord, fill us with the joy of the Holy Spirit that we may obey you and obey your commandments because we love you. Keep us in thy love, O God. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, brother. Please stand for the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.